Graphic Policy Radio. This is the Comics Podcast. This is your host, Elon Eleven, uh, and this is the Comics Podcast for folks who like their comics and science fiction with political subtext and political text. Because from Green Arrow to Star Trek, it's always been there. Even if you were just a child and weren't able to notice it at the time, you're a grown-up now, and you can notice it now and appreciate it, even if you couldn't before. That's right. Today I'm interviewing some writer, two uh, writers, a creative team, who are embarking on a number of politically adjacent comics projects, uh, including such as Green Arrow, which is just coming to a close right now, the, the comic, not the show. Uh, and I'm really excited to have them joining me again. This is Jackson Lanzig and Colin Kelly. They are screenwriters and New York Times best-selling comic book creators known for Joyride at Boom Studios, Gotham City Garage at DC Comics, working with Alyssa Milano on Hacktivist, who I actually have done activist work with myself because it's a small world. Uh, Zo- actually, how do you pronounce the, your fantasy comic? Zojacon. 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 Thank you. Yeah. At Vault. It's, it's cool. It's a nonsense word. We don't expect you to be able to pronounce it on first try. I don't know why we named the book that. It's been a huge problem for us. <laughs> well, at least it'll be easier to make sure that you have your own hashtag that no one else will be using for anything else. It, true. Um, <laughs> well, they recently finished a three-issue run on Green Arrow to close out the series um, and announced Dark One with fantasy titan Brandon Sanderson at Vault. And in April, they'll be launching Star Trek Year 5, number one, which they are also showrunning. They are also known in the gaming community for their innovative live play RPG shows, Vast and Champions of the Earth. Welcome back to the show, guys. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Uh, we had such a blast uh, right. on your last time talking about Joyride, and uh, it, it's uh, great to be back. For uh, for for folks who might not know our voices, uh, this is Colin, and uh, this is Jackson. Howdy. Hey, you know that actually brings me to one of the first questions I wanted to talk with you about, which is creative partnerships. How did you guys like? You guys are like literal co-writers. I, I, I know people who sometimes co-writer and project on things depending on the project. And obviously in comics, artists and writers make teams that are frequently shifting, even though you do have a lot of repeats. You guys are like a true writing partnership. Like, how did that happen? How do you maintain it? Uh, how could we find our own writing partners, even if we're perhaps at a later moment in our life? Huh. Uh, absolutely. I guess uh, let me go ahead and kind of start. Um, you know, Jack and I have a, a wild little bit of an origin story because when we first met, uh, I absolutely hated him. Uh, it's it's true. <laughs> I, I saw him as a rival and, uh, you know, he's just this kind of stylish, intelligent, wild storyteller who kind of rolled into our friend group and I saw him as a competitor. Um, but over the course of time, it started to become clear that a lot of that animosity was basically just because it was kind of like looking in a mirror. Uh, and there's so much mm-hmm. that he did so well uh, that it kind of, it, it put me a little on edge, honestly. And one day we're, we're hanging out. Uh, we had been in a writing group together where it became clear that he wasn't just a, wasn't just a charmer, but he also had the chops. Um, you know, he was writing this really small kind of a personal, almost more of a, a theater black box style story about a young boy growing up. Uh, and I was writing this script about uh, essentially time travel explosions. Uh, it was just all explosions <laughs> all the way down. Um, and 
you know, his writing was so sharp and clever and personal. And I realized that that kind of was something that I myself was lacking. And meanwhile, I was, uh, you know, on the flip side of it, you know, I was I was a little bit younger. We met in college uh, and I was a couple years younger than than uh, than Colin and, and David, who was uh, our mutual friend who introduced us. Um, David Server, who I wrote Freak Show with uh, uh, back then in college. And uh, mm. I had been looking at Colin's work um, in this writing group and had been like, damn, man, I didn't know you could write movies like this. Like these were the movies that I grew up loving and watching. Um, you know, I grew up pretty. My, my mom was. Um, uh, bankrupt when I was growing up. My when my dad divorced uh, my mom, I ended up we ended up with like very little money, and so we only had like a couple of mm. movies on VHS that I would just rewatch over and over and over again because they were the only ones that we could buy, and they were all, um, you know, either like Spielberg or Lucas um, or that sort of oeuvre inspired, right? It was all it was Star Wars, it was Indiana Jones, um, uh, Raiders specifically, and then. Uh, you know, like Hook and like a bunch of these sort of just these these big sort of fantasy fun time movies were what I had grown up on. But I didn't think you could write that. I didn't know that, that was like a really a job. Even when I went to film school, I didn't really understand most of this stuff. So I read Colin's work and I was like, well, shoot, you can write this like you can write like time travel explosions. And that's like that's like a thing that <laughs> people will actually read. Uh, and I loved it. I was reading the, the movie and being like, this is fucking brilliant. And uh, and. So I was seeing something that I was lacking, which was this sort of like big imagination towards taking these huge swings into genre. Um, mm. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I think as our mutual respect bubbled up, our mutual uh, sort of interest became apparent. And then, yeah, we were hanging out uh, around the time that we graduated school. We both went to USC. Uh, Colin was in the screenwriting program. I was in the directing program, but I was not much of a director. Oh, and wow. we uh, better now, but much not better now. now. And uh, we got into this discussion as we were going on a road trip uh, out to Lollapalooza. And uh, it was a big, big road trip from L.A. to Chicago. And uh, a couple days before it, we were just hanging out and talking about whatever. And uh, I think we mostly we were talking about like our, our, our favorite samurai movies because we both grew up on samurai movies. And uh, we came together on a on an idea. We were like, wouldn't it be cool to like do a samurai movie, but like really infuse it with a ton of like. Uh, you know, genre fiction, like kind of like what Frank Miller did with with Wolverine. Um, like, what would you or Chris Claremont and Frank Miller did with Wolverine? Like, what would you, you know, how could you play with that now? And we came up with a movie that we ended up writing along this road trip, uh, called Sundown. That was basically Seven Samurai, but protecting the town against uh demons of sort of ancient Japanese lore. Um, because I was, I was, we were both deeply into Japanese history. Uh, I used to speak Japanese. I'm terrible at it now. Uh, but at the time, it was like this was something we could really play with. And um, we finished that movie, came back from that road trip, and found that it got way more traction than anything that either of us had written individually. Uh, mm -hmm. It was just, there was a magic there that clearly worked. We wrote faster together. We wrote better together. We checked each other's worst instincts and enhanced each other's best instincts. Uh, it was a... I remember that first day where we like actually sat down to draft together and it was, I mean, we got something like 80 pages out. They weren't good pages, but we got a lot done, but they were that, fun pages. Yeah. Because that magic was working. So, uh, we kind of knew what we had, at, at least we knew that that script was, was doing well and we should maybe think about continuing to work together. And, um, yeah, it was kind of like a, well, this one's okay, but I guess let's try it again. But like, let's just start this partnership. Let's just see how the next one goes. And we've basically been seeing how the next one goes for about a decade now. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, 
And I mean, I think in terms of how you, you know, how you ID that or how you find that in your life, like my my only advice in that regard is like keep your keep your eyes open and your ego down. Um, we often talk about ego death in our work that like I I need to be ready for my pages to not work for Colin and Colin needs to be ready for his pages to not work for me. And we need to be ready to have those conversations and get blunt about each other's work and find those places where the stuff's going to um uh, where we build that synergy. Uh, so, you know, writing partnerships, you are writing, uh, supposedly write half the material, but that's not really true. You're both writing 100% of the material, um, which can often take longer uh, just because you guys actually have to argue it out. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. something Colin and I, I think have gotten pretty good at, uh, much to the shock of our wives. I think we, once my wife <laughs> was like sitting in the room with us and we, we disagreed vehemently on a, on a story point and we were just going back and forth and yelling at each other and be like, you're no, this is it's just it's you're an idiot. terrible. What's wrong with this? This is terrible. And then like, <laughs> and it was, well, we should just do this. And then I was like, yeah, no, we, we should just, yeah, we should do that. And he was like, yeah, we should do that. And we just sat there and we're like, cool. And then we just start typing and Colin leaves. And my wife who's been in the room the whole time just looks at me and goes, the fuck was that? Because <laughs> uh, like that's part of how our process works. We've built a um, mm -hmm. sort of a ley line between our brains, and now we just try to exploit it as much as possible. I freaking love it. So, is one of your tips for us that maybe we should join a writing group or writer's circle? Yeah, man. Oh, absolutely. Um, there is mm -hmm. literally nothing that you can do better for your own writing than. Uh, repeatedly subject it to the criticism of your peers um, until you can, not only just so that your writing gets better, but so that your collaborative ability gets better. Um, even if you're going to end up writing alone, an important thing for anyone but you know the most prolific novelist is the fact that you are going to be writing with a group where you need to be taking other people's creative input, whether it's a producer or an editor or an artist, um, whoever it is. And a lot of times writers especially are going to approach the craft with such a protectivity. Um, they just, they have their story and they have it entirely in their head and they have to keep it safe that it becomes very hard to listen and take critique. But you absolutely need to be able to drop that bullshit and put the ego aside and hear the best idea and let the best idea ring out. Uh, and if that's going to come from a, a regular a writer's workshop that you're regularly meeting on, um, that's a fantastic place to start. Well, speaking of art being collaborative, you guys just got to close down a comic series. And, you know, what is more collaborative than decades and decades long comic serials? Uh, in this case, Green Arrow, one of my favorite characters. Um, Ours too. And... Uh, yeah, and it shows, um, you know, Ali, Dinah are like, just you guys have an, do amazing work with them in this, and I've really enjoyed being able to read it. So, Thank you. You know, I, I think you you guys, you know, it, you didn't know necessarily that this would be the end of the series when you signed on, but then you found out as you began working on it, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Like, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you close a comic, especially one that you've inherited. It's not like a, something that you yourself began and plotted out a whole story arc for. It's a, uh, I guess the answer is carefully um, and with great respect for uh, both what's coming before you and what's coming after. Um, we had a, uh, because even when you're closing down a book, you got to recognize that th this is not the end of the character. It might just be the end of the book, right? So what you have to do is, is acknowledge that, um, 
somebody's going to pick this up after you. And what you're trying to do is set a really interesting groundwork. Um, ultimately, you know, we, when we came in on green arrow, we had a lot of ideas. Um, and we, we've been pretty public about this, uh, but pretty early on in the process, it became clear that, um, you know, not really apropos of those ideas, but just because there were other ideas already in the works, there just wasn't going to be room for us to do, you know, the kind of thing that we were looking to do at the time. Uh, which was, by the way, pretty political, um, which I think would have been a big swing. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so moving towards and you can see some some evidence of that with uh, our new character, Jace Riot, that we introduce and the way that they um, sort of uh, act as a political uh, uh, buffer inside the book for Ollie. Mm -hmm. uh, but we and we can talk about that, you know, down the line. But when yes. we were looking at how we're going to end the book, it really was a matter of it absorbing everything that had come before, going back and rereading the Benjamin Percy run, really understanding what the Bensons were doing um, during their uh, stint on the book, and then finding a way for us to try to wrap that in a bow that meant something to us. And mm -hmm. uh, if, if that was all it was, that would have been enough, right? I think then you're, you're really just looking at like, what are the themes that those writers before you were putting down? Where are you picking up this character? And if you only have three issues, you can't lay a lot of your own groundwork. So it's really, how do you... Um, how do you just land the plane? Um, that we used to use that metaphor a lot with uh, Grayson mm. because we did this once before on Grayson, uh, the book at uh, DC Comics, mm -hmm. a few years back, which was my favorite book at DC at the time of uh, us taking it over. I was I was really um, huge fan of what Tim Seeley and Tom King and Nickel Janine were doing over there, and we came into pinch hit when mm -hmm. Tom went to Batman and Tim went to Nightwing, and uh, we worked off of an outline that they'd provided. We built out a little bit of our own stuff, but mostly there it was just how do we make sure that we're hitting the beats that need to get hit for the story that's, and the mystery that's been set up uh, to land and to end. On, on Green Arrow, no such roadmap existed. Uh, the roadmap was pretty open uh, in terms of what we needed to do. But there were a ton of things that were in the road already, right? There was a box yeah. that he'd been given <laughs> from the Justice League in No Justice. There was uh, the death of Roy Harper in Heroes in Crisis uh, that was taking a huge toll on him. There was his relationship with Black Canary that was already being established. There was his house, their new base, his aeroplane, all of this stuff that had just been introduced in the Benson run. There was a sense of civilian unrest and outrage and political feeling in Seattle in the uh, aftermath of everything that had gone down with Star City in Ben's, uh, in, in Ben's run and then in Julian Shauna's run, uh, the citizen, um, who was more of a you know direct political take on on a uh, a sort of like social media villain and for us it was a matter of okay well how do you take all of these threads and turn them into a, an effective solid end point uh for this character that that lets him put down the mask that lets him put down the the his his leadership of sort of uh, uh being a vigilante in seattle and even lets him put down his relationship with black canary because uh you know there were plans for that character and plans for him so how do you how do you wrap all that stuff, uh, you know, now that you've identified all of your core elements? And Colin and I, I, you know, as we try to do, and I think Colin can speak probably better this um, now that I've sort of set the stage, but we really look at how, uh, how you do this entirely from a perspective of character. You know, let's not worry too much about plot. Let's not get ourselves tied up in the machinations of individual plot mechanics. Uh, we'll get there. But when we're trying to break that, the first thing we do is we look to the character, what they're going through, and how they're going to manage that crisis. Yeah, I mean, being able to kind of track everywhere he came from and all the different kind of things that were pushing him here, it was important to think about 
not only kind of, and also obviously we had a mandate to kind of get him to a place where he was able to have a new status quo, which if you know anything about Ali, that means that he needed to be left with nothing, right? If he has a single shred of something to hold on to, he'll hold on to it to his very last breath. Well, we could not kill this character. Um, so the challenge to us was really making this incredibly emotional story out of what was, you know, six, seven, eight different disparate plot elements. And I think that's one of the things that we actually love the most. And I think if there was a, if we could get a reputation for being, you know, the guys who can unravel your narrative knot, I would love it. Um, basically, we were- So you were... guys are like the Mariano Rivera of comics, the, the sleeper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. Um, I will never make a sports metaphor ever again. Uh, if you're going to make one, make a baseball one, because Colin can speak to them. I know nothing about sports. Uh, Colin <laughs> knows his baseball pretty well I, at this point. I know baseball, so. but that's it. And apparently I really don't know sports because I didn't mean sleeper. I meant closer. Oops. Um, but I mean, that, exactly. But that's the, that's the deal, right? Like for us, you, you put us in an impossible cage um, and all we want to do is figure out the way out. I mean... If I, um, I feel like I'm pitching a Mr. Miracle book, but um, <laughs> like that's so fun. It's when you have an entire horizon of possibilities, that's when things can get really complicated. But when you are looking out and you're like, well, there's mines everywhere, let's pl plot a path. That's the kind of fun problem solving that we really excel at. And then when you keep that rotating around the importance of character first, you know, we always say that if you strip out all the action, you strip out all the plot malarkey, all the science fiction, all the fantasy, you're just left with a character story. And that character story absolutely has to sing. And this story is really about a man who's been unable to process his grief. And because of that is watching as his relationship kind of is ripped apart around him. Uh, and, you know, we take him on a full emotional journey in issue 50 um, and leave him at a place where, yes, he's still damaged, but he is owning his trauma and owning his damage in a way that I don't think Oliver Queen has done in, you know, years. I, I, I really think that's a perfect way to, to, to end that. I mean, um, I, I also feel like you're setting up, I, I, I you know, the series I think was basically put off because there's going to be some superhero big thing that it didn't make sense for him to have a solo book in the middle of is my perception. Uh, but it feels like this is a setup in the, for the future of maybe a hard traveling heroes based story where you have a character on the road. I, you know, I, at least that was how I, how I read the ending was like leaving it open for that, especially since he just went down in an airplane, which is, Oh yeah, that's a spoiler. But whatever, folks know this issue is ending, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, okay. they're fine. It's, it's okay. You know, he's obviously not dead. It's a comic. You know this. Um, and there was an airplane. It was an Ollie story. It reflected back on a classic story where he died going down in a plane. It's cool. Um, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, hard traveling heroes. At least I feel like you also like sort of loaded up the bases. So at some point in the future, when it's ready to kick up again, like that could be a good starting point for it. Uh, I mean, look, we, we, have, the, yeah. we, we do not uh, uh, really know, truthfully, um, where yeah. you're going to see Ollie next. Uh, we have, you know, about as much information as, as most people do. Uh, what we know is where we placed him. But uh, I think what's, to your point about looking forward, right, and like trying to allow for people to have imagination, even though the book is over, that's 
Um, I'm really glad you're thinking that way because that's what we were hoping for. Um, it's a very hopeless ending uh, because, as Colin pointed out, if 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 Ollie has any hope left, he's going to keep fighting. Uh, and we needed him to give up the fight. We needed him to walk, you know, again, to speak to spoilers, right? But we needed him to walk away from Seattle at the end with no mm -hmm. Dinah, with no house, with no plane, with no mantle, with no suit, with no arrows. Um, we needed him to walk with no box. We needed him to walk away with, with, with everything um, taken from him, frankly, so that somebody else can come along when it is next time to do this and really, like, start telling that next story with him. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and give them a, a, as close to a blank slate as possible to be like, this is where this guy, you know, this is Ollie fully broken down. However you want to rebuild him, rebuild him. Um, and I think it's, it's a challenge when you're writing something that has so little hope to be like, but maybe there's some hope in the future. And I, I think we, we really tried to balance that, especially on that last page, uh, with Ollie recognizing that, that, um, a lot of the life that he's been living recently is not one that's sustainable, but yeah. there may be going forward. There's a new life that he can build. Uh, well, and that's one of those things again, that like speaking to the politics of the book, um, though not necessarily <laughs> overt, we have all, I think as uh, it's, it's no, it is, it is literally no surprise to anybody who knows anything about me at this point. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty left politically. Uh, I, I sit pretty far to the left and my, general instinct with Ollie is to let him sit about as far to the left as I do. Uh, but he's a little, you know, he's a little older. He has a little bit less, uh, uh, maybe a little bit less uh, consciousness about like what's going on on the ground roots of, and like, and like what's going on with poor people and what's going on with uh, the people that he doesn't see on a regular day to day basis, which is what Jace Riot was there to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. But what he can go through that we can all go through is the sense that, um, sometimes events are so much larger than you and the people who pull those levers of power are so powerful in our case, obviously that's oligarchs and massive, comp you know, massive corporations and, uh, you know, political dynasties, all of that stuff. We don't have a lot of direct control over it, even though we feel like we have control. We feel like we can fight. We feel like we can protest. We can make activist action. We can vote. But sometimes, um, when it doesn't go our way, it feels this sort of like this crushing boulder of hopelessness that can just roll over everything that we have and all we can do is try to run out of the way, which isn't heroic and doesn't look, doesn't feel like our our, our ideals are intact. It just feels like we've lost. And uh, Well, the feeling all... I had from that, and yeah, sorry. Oh, no, no, please, go. Uh, the feeling that I've had from that and that is certainly sits in my interpretation of the story is is that when that happens to, to you, it's about looking, sometimes like, sometimes we are not the center of the story and mm. that we have to hand over that leadership and the impetus to be at the vanguard and to be setting the tone of what action looks like moving forward in the hands of a different generation or in the hands of other kinds of marginalized voices. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it was really exciting to bring in Jace Riot, you know, being a non-binary character who's a person of color, like having, having sort of Ollie seed the city to them is like, to, to, you know, to me, as like an activist, it was like sort of saying like, yes, sometimes us old, old folks who've maybe been in it for a long time, we don't always have all the answers. And sometimes we need to cede to the leadership of another generation. And the best thing for us to do can be to support them and not get in their way and to do what we can to elevate them. So, you know, I, I, I felt that from it for sure. Uh, absolutely. Which That's is, which is, is a yeah. kind of, 
which is a kind of, of, uh, of friendship that we try to uh, extend in our normal lives. It's a kind of politics that we try to extend in our lives. Um, and it's definitely something that uh, from the moment that we stepped onto Green Arrow, we knew was going to be central to our premise around the character, that this is a guy who... Uh, the last thing he ever wants to do is give up uh, leadership or give up a spotlight, but that his ideals, because that's like Oliver Queen, you know, that's his damage, mm -hmm. but that uh, underneath that is an ideal and a politics that he has been developing over years and years and years that is that is unique in the DC universe, right? This social conscience that yes. he has. Um, and that we were we would ideally have a real opportunity to say, okay, what does it look like when Ollie is presented with and, and has to directly... Uh, uh, confront his own privilege and i and you know we only had a little bit of time to do that I, i'm glad you got something out of that uh, i certainly feel like there's a great future for jace riot uh if anybody decides to um you know to to follow up on that or pick that up i i hope they show up in other dc books i hope we get a chance to tell their story someday but or that somebody else does frankly i hope i hope the the mm -hmm. i hope the character lives on because i think that they carve out a unique as you put it like new younger place in the dcu that just straight up doesn't exist um before they show up on the scene it's it's a lot like this new young crop of democratic politicians who are coming in and pushing everybody to the left because they, they all of a sudden you have these voices that are elevated that now can't be silenced because they have the mantle uh and i think there's something very um and we're clearly reckoning with that right now uh and i, I think that's something that, mm -hmm. that you know i'd love to see more of in big two books i think miles morales is one of the great manifestations of this in in pop culture and i it's been so lovely watching uh spider-verse kind of wake everybody up to that so i hope that there's more of that uh kind of uh, that that iterative legacy uh brought to books at all the companies you know not just dc i think like one of you know i, I was like a lot of people really excited at the introduction of jace riot and you know but i i think the fact that you know this character is coming at an end of the series sort of points to one of the challenges when it comes to queer and representation in particular, which is that when most of the queer characters are ones that we are, that are being written new, that are new characters that are being invented anew, there's such a high risk of them just disappearing as soon as the person who creates them is no longer running that book. Um, so I, you know, I really do hope that people keep them in mind especially in future green arrow stories like you know you he, like he has to exist in dialogue with what's happening in the world today he has to exist in a political story and like jace is a better representation of the now than he is and but he's still political like if you're not doing a political and if and he's still a leftist and if you're not doing a political leftist ollie like you might as well be writing some other character yeah then he's back um, totally right so yeah, exactly. Without that, he's Batman, which is why I don't watch a certain show whose name I won't mention. Um, so, um, you know, so, but like, but that, but that, but you know, but that points to the concern, which is like, you guys are like, like putting in the work to set up a really great non-binary character, but then it's ultimately, it's not in your hands whether that character ever shows up again, or it's just like going to be a footnote in those lists where we like treasure the few queer characters we get and then they vanish, you know? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely share your concern and um, yeah, and your hopes. Um, we love Jace immensely and hope that they continue to show up. Um, what I can say is that uh, DC also really loves the character. Yeah. Uh, we 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 wrestled. We wrestled with names, with looks. Um, like this was not a character that we kind of snuck in through the back. Like top to bottom, 
everyone actively loves Jace. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that's a good indicator that in this case, they're not going to disappear. Um, we really hope that uh, both, you know, the higher powers that be recognize Jace's value uh, as an important voice within the DCU and that other creators see their potential and take advantage. Um, but I think there's also a, a note to be put there, and, and I, I do really want to, you know, triple or quadruple underline how effectively DC backed that character. Um, it was never a fight. They were in our very first outline. They were in our very last outline. There was never a moment where we were like, can this character not be this character? Like, the only thing they wanted mm-hmm. from the character was to go further with it. They were, like, they they were backed by DC, which was wonderful. And and was and that was Good really Good editors matter. Oh. Um, and, I, mm-hmm. and I do think that that's something that is going to continue at DC. Um, whether or not it's Jace or not is not really up to us. Uh, it's very much yeah. up to them. But I, I think that that kind of searching for representation inside of the DCU, which is traditionally very, uh, uh, you know, traditionally has a very, it looks very much like the 1950s uh, over there. I think figuring out how to open that up has been a a long journey and we're just one small link in a very, very long chain of, um, you know, going all the way back to, you know, Dwayne McDuffie and and well before. Uh, But I think there's also something I want to mention because you you said like, oh, you know, you you introduce this character and then, you know, maybe you never come back and write it. That's true. Maybe we never come back and write them. But ideally what we've done, um, if nothing else, is place a chess piece on the board for um, one of a whole crop of really incredible uh, queer, non-binary trans writers coming into this space who are looking for characters who who, who don't want to just come in or who maybe it would be too difficult for them to come in and pitch a whole new slate of characters. Uh, we've now put one in the universe. So if you're coming into the DCU mm-hmm. and you come from a marginalized background or you are looking for yourself in there, maybe you find Jace and maybe you find a place for Jace in your stories. Um, ideally, this character is a, a a crumb left behind for people who frankly look and uh, identify differently than we do and mm-hmm. can find themselves uh, there. Just something that we try to do with representation in general. We're, we're two straight white guys. We don't try to hide that, um, you know, but we do try to write stories that expand representation across the board. Joyride was an exercise in that um, after a fashion. Uh, Hacktivist certainly is, a, uh, is an exercise in that. Uh, Gotham City Garage was a huge exercise in that. Zojacon is an exercise in that we we don't write a lot of stories about straight white dudes uh and that's not just because we don't find them interesting it's just we we part of what excites us about uh about telling stories is getting inside of the minds of people who are not us of of uh doing our research of talking to people of recognizing that humanity uh, across the board and then trying to expand it into our work and then ideally if that opens up some opportunities for actual people in the actual world who are looking for that representation um, and are looking for a way to, to build it up, then great. Then we've done to some small degree what we're asking Ollie to do in Green Era mm-hmm. um, and dropping a hand behind us and being like, hey, the ladder's, you know, the ladder's still there and we're going to hold it for you. If I'm not mistaken, you also had some characters in Gotham Garage who are queer in that universe who aren't in the main DCU or am I not? Uh, yes properly. yes uh <laughs> yes indeed zatanna and uh silver banshee were in a uh were in a relationship which was actually something we really wanted to to play with but uh the book ended before uh we were able to get back to those characters but we have a whole plot line if we ever get to come back to that universe uh that is it's just like a it's just like a take on the wild one with the two of them that i, I really want to do oh wow 
That's fun. It'd be yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of fans have looked to, you know, like Bombshells, with you know, which has really been spearheaded by um, uh, Marguerite Bennett. Yep. Marguerite's a hero yes, of mine. Yes. I just yeah. think she's... Sorry, my brain is... I, I, I just think yeah. Marguerite can do no wrong. I think she's just wonderful and incredible, and I think she's gotten tired of me saying it to her, but I don't care. <laughs> she's so good. It's a fact. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, with her leadership in Bombshells, like, these Elseworlds have kind of become places for fans to put their hands into a, a more significantly queer world than you find in, in ones where people are saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, from established canon. And it's sort of a space for experimentation. And I think that's one of the huge values of, you know, I guess they're not technically Elseworlds books, but of the Elseworlds books that they're doing is um, there's just all this wild freedom to get so innovative and weird and unexpected. Um, We had like essentially, I mean, obviously we worked with Christy Quinn, who was a fantastic editor, um, but no one was really looking too hard over her shoulder. um, And we got to do some pretty wild stuff. Uh, I, I, I hunger one of the the only huh, sorry I'm getting so excited um one of the only things that I do feel like we kind of missed out on that series because it didn't quite get to run as long as we wanted was some more of the romance angles um we were spending this time writing all these these really strong interesting women uh that you know we did have a, ser- a plot to service so we had to tell our story, and that unfortunately meant that we did not have as much time for for the tender, for the smaller moments that might have, where we might have seen some more of these relationships develop. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm really glad that we were able to get what uh, we were into the book. We also that I mean, that you guys book was... do relationship stuff really well. So oh, no, it's we like thank one of the you. We, we're it, there for. We yeah. uh, relationships are deeply important in both of our lives. Obviously, as I said, we're both uh, we're both married to to incredible women, and then um, we ourselves you know are this weird hive mind You're you fine. know jay and silent bob thing that we have going on uh <laughs> that like truly yes you I know think, i think like i'd like to think we're more ted cord and booster gold Ooh, i like that better that's yeah, much that's much stronger uh and neither of us are silent enough to be silent exactly bob. yeah no you're right <laughs> um but you know that means that relationships tend to be at the cores of our books uh, because, and, and, and our books tend to have multiple perspectives. We don't tend to do like single protagonist books. That's not always true. Obviously mm. um, uh, Zojacon is very much a single protagonist book, but uh, by and large, we really like to do either ensembles or, or duos uh, or best friends. You know, we love telling best friend stories for obvious reasons. So tell me about Zojacon a little bit. Ooh, Yeah. Zojicon's the weird one. Uh, so Zojicon is our uh, it's a, it's our first book at Vault. Um, who we're now doing uh, this sort of big epic fantasy uh, dark one with, um, with working with Brendan Sanderson, which is just a complete dream come true for both of us. We cannot believe we get an opportunity to to, to work with someone as uh, as incredible and as storied as Brandon. Uh, he is a master storyteller, and I feel like we're learning from him all the time, uh, even just as we write in his world. But uh, Zojikon started as uh, kind of a fever dream of a pitch. Uh, it was, that's why it's got that title. That title was just the nonsense word we put at the top of the document when we started talking about what this book would be. Um, we're both big fans of uh, fantasy and portal fantasy. We're both big fans of like Conan the Barbarian and Red Sonia and these um, very like, uh, I guess what you'd think of as like these, these, side medieval kind of fantasies yeah, um, obviously medieval, we love medieval adjacent fantasy, but sword and sandal exactly yeah. 
Um, uh, well, we're also huge fans of of Dune, like and and books like mm-hmm. Dune, right? Books that are stories that are challenging to the reader and saying, "Yo, keep up." Right, mm-hmm. we're we are not going to explain this to you. You really need to dig for this, um, which is just I, we think is a wonderful way to tell a story. And it became the way that we handled Zojikon. Um, so Zojikon is the story uh, of a woman from our world, Shannon Kind, uh, who is a uh, she's a mother of a child who um, has died in his teenage years. She has isolated herself from the rest of the world around her. She's the first generation um, daughter of immigrants uh, raised in this country. She doesn't have a lot of a support system around her. She works at the you know the USPS. Uh, this is not like a woman of any kind of privilege. And so when her son dies and the world kind of leaves her behind, she's isolated fully and, is- and lets herself become isolated. Uh, and all of that is preamble to page one, which finds Shannon falling out of the sky of this weird primordial world um, that she will learn to call Zojakon, uh, which is the name of the world that the book takes place on. And uh, Shannon is, for reasons that are mysterious to the reader and that I, you know, I do not think we ever literally explain in the book. We, we had some ideas about how we might do it, and then we decided very much against it um, based on what the book became. Uh, <laughs> falls out of the sky of this place and uh, finds herself unstuck in time there. Uh, she can move forward uh, along the timescape at really, really vast intervals or really small intervals. She can move forward a day or she can move forward a year or she can move forward a century or she can move forward a millennia. She can never move back. And she can't control when or how she jumps. Especially not early. And the book is about her, uh, in the first, this is sort of how I always, uh, I think, makes Zojikon make the most sense. In the first 33 pages or so, you're going to follow you're going to follow Shannon through like millions of years of Zojikon history, but it's only going to have been a couple of weeks for her, maybe a few months. Um because she's going to stop in these individual periods and she's going to try to survive. But as she survives by the end of our first sort of double uh, double first issue, I guess like page 40 or so, she will discover that those decisions have allowed a civilization to develop. Um, a small, weird little civilization of these little axolotl-looking dudes who call them th- call themselves the Zoja. Thus, Zoja Khan. It means the world of the Zoja. Uh, she takes the Zoja under her wing and tries to, um, as she did for her child who is who is dead now, um, tries to teach them right from wrong. Tries to teach them to be moral people, to be better people, um, to have uh, uh, you know not just strength but wisdom. And discovers how incredibly difficult that is. Um, how it's not as simple as going in and just educating uh, somebody and and then everything's going to work out. Um, and that sometimes, you know, you have to be really careful what you say because in the words of, uh, you know, Sondheim and Lapine, people will listen. Our children will listen. Uh, they will take your words and then if you're not around, say you skip ahead 100 years uh, and you're not around to correct them, they may misinterpret you. So this book becomes mm. this push and pull over millennia of this one woman trying to help this civilization uh, grow and develop and um, and become a just one and uh, the ways that that succeeds and fails. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, the art is by Nathan Gooden, who uh, is kind of the third, he's the artistic visionary behind Vault, most of Vault's line. Um, he's their art director. 
and he his work is he's like a punk rock Frank Frazetta. Um, it's really one of the main <laughs> reasons that we worked with Vault is because we were able to work with Nathan. Um, his 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 art is just jaw droppingly amazing. It's poetic and lyrical and haunting and just it's a beautiful dreamscape uh even if you think our words might be garbage you should absolutely look into his art because it'll be worth your while and then um to to colin's point about dune the book is actually spoken about and this actually kind of gets to the politics of the book the book is designed on um, the narrative of it is designed as a handoff constantly between two different narrators one of the narrators is the the what's called the shan law uh which is the book that the zojakon or that the zoja uh write uh, in her absence each time to remember the lessons that she gave them. It's basically their Bible, right? And we're getting a good portion of the story from the perspective of their Bible, but often seeing that the words that they have written down about this are not really, don't have a terrible lot of connection to the truth. Uh, the other side of that that we'll hear interspersed is Shan's internal monologue, as this woman from our world deals with surviving in this like incredible alien climate. And... So often we'll see, you know, the Bible telling us that she is this incredible warrior making deals with gods to protect the Zoja. And on the other side, we just watch her, um, you know, nearly dying at the hands of monsters in this forest and just yelling, fuck, 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 and running away as hard as she can and wondering how <laughs> she's supposed to possibly do this. Uh, we, we talked a lot at the early stages of this book about what would it be like to be uh, you know, a messianic figure like, say, Jesus Christ and walking back into the American South or walking into the American South for the first time and seeing what has been um, profligated in your name, seeing what they've taken from your lessons and what they haven't, uh, what words they've put into your mouth and what words they've decided to leave behind and how impossibly um, difficult that would be to be in that position. And so we really wanted to put somebody... Uh, who didn't feel or look like Jesus, somebody who, who felt and looked like, uh, uh, you know, like, like, uh, like us, like an American, like a, um, uh, somebody from the immigrant diaspora who would just be another person you'd walk past down the street. Uh, let's put somebody like that in that position and really humanize that, uh, uh, that terrible conflict because it is something that we all deal with every day. We're all interpreting so much of our society is built on interpreting the words of people who haven't been alive for thousands of years uh, and trying to live an example that we're not even entirely certain is an example. Um, so we, we really wanted to reckon with that in the weirdest possible way with lots of monsters and dragons and castles and, you know, that's very much us. <laughs> so that's that is what Zojikon is. I um, mean, it's available in trade. It's a one volume. You can find it anywhere. Uh, it's it's uh, I'm really proud of that book. Wow, that sounds like really ambitious. I, I'm excited about that, and I'll be checking it out. Thank you. I mean, you know, what's nerdier than like examining the text, right? Which is what, mm -hmm. which is what's happening there. Very much. Yeah. Well, we're big nerds. <laughs> <laughs> which brings us to what you guys have coming up next, also, which is Star Trek comics. Uh, whoop, whoop. I got to see a couple behind-the-scenes pages. The art looks gorgeous. Oh my god. Um, this is all. Good God, right? Yeah, like... it's stunning. It's so amazing. <laughs> Stephen Thompson, uh, who had done uh, some covers for Star Trek previously, uh, and uh, I think had done some interior work as well, just, uh, we, had, we had sort of set the tone uh, in our pitch. Um, part of, I think, why we were hired onto this book was that we came in and said, like, we're not doing campy TOS. Um, like, there was a, 
There was a thing last night. No, nah, I'm not going to talk about this. Uh, we're not going to do the campy version of Star Trek. We're not going to try to like own um, the the Trouble with Tribbles tone uh, with this book. As much as I love Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah. What we're going to try to do mm-hmm. is what, uh, you know, the sort of, I think the sort of platonic ideal of Star Trek was to uh, a lot of the people who were making it at the time, which was this relatively serious, character-focused military drama series. And... We're like, so that's going to need an artist who can really bring the acting and who can really bring the, um, the, that tone to life so that it doesn't feel cartoony, so that it doesn't feel, uh, too, um, too in that kind of like animated series box, which, you know, can be great. Mm-hmm. It just isn't what we were going for. Well, and, and in addition, Steven, phew, Steven just nailed it. Yeah. And, and he's able to approach it, um, with a cinematic lens, even though we're spending the, because obviously the, one of the trickiest things about a Star Trek book or a Star Trek story is the Star Trek bridge is a very tight space. Uh, and it's just really complicated to get really juicy, innovative shots, especially if you're saddled with a camera, a physical production camera. Steven's not. So he's able to find these incredibly dynamic angles um, and create these shots that are just it's just exactly what you want as a Star Trek fan. And we can confidently say mm-hmm. that because we are massive Star Trek fans. Yeah. I, we I should am. also, we should also note this is Star Trek, like OG Star Trek. This is TOS. This isn't uh, yeah. uh next generation as much as I love. And, and deep space nine is my, you know, I'm, I'm probably being, I probably shouldn't say this anymore, but DS nine is my favorite Star Trek series. I am. I am um, wearing, it, it is. I, I am wearing Cisco's baseball mm-hmm. hat right now. Uh, I am. A... See, no, DS9 is the best. Like, it's a yeah. fact. And yeah, DS9 it, is. It, it, a- DS9 incredible. is. Yeah, it's Star Trek for political science majors. <laughs> is, uh... I I also think it's Star Trek for storytellers. I think it's Star Trek for people mm. who want every episode to bleed into the next one. I think when you're watching TOS or TNG or even to some degree Voyager or Enterprise, um, you're looking for that connective tissue. I mean. Discovery is almost entirely connective tissue, uh, you know, sort of like flip that on its head. But mm-hmm. we're always looking, you know, I think when I was growing up on Star Trek, especially with TNG, I was always looking for connective tissue that I didn't get. And by the as DS9 started to bring it in to its episodic nature and still gave you a story where the character stuff was all very connective, uh, but that the individual episodes could still give you a big, great, you know, mis- sci-fi mystery that solved in one Uh those that was to me that's like the platonic ideal of star trek that's just like i just awesome so what we wanted to do was go back to tos um which is what we're taking and we're talking you know shatner kirk leonard nimoy playing spock um to forrest kelly like michelle nichols whole crew and we're going to try to give them a character arc we're going to run them over a whole character story uh, over the course of two years of comics, 24 issues, uh, with a team of writers, including the incredible uh, Jody Hauser, um, who's a great friend of ours, and I can't believe we finally get to work with her, and I can't believe we get to work with her on Star Trek, of all things. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Brandon Easton, who's amazing and who I've been uh, getting to know recently and is just a, a top-notch Star Trek writer. And Jim McCann, um, who is a lovely man and an absolutely excellent presence in the room. And uh, what he has planned for his work is a a great culmination of a lot of the things we're talking about. So we get to work with this whole room. They're writing about half the book. We're writing about half the book. And we're putting it together into a season of television, essentially. 24 uh, issues that make up 12 episodes uh, that are going to give you... Sorry? Oh, everything's a two-parter. Yep. Right. 
And by the end of that, you're oh. going to have gotten this whole season of um, original series Star Trek that brings us to the very end of the five-year journey. And along the way, because it is Star Trek, we are going to try to turn the lens as hard as we can on um, not the like direct political situations we're in um we're not going to be doing a uh you know i think i think frankly discovery kind of handled that pretty directly with you know make the empire glorious again and and everything that they were doing with discovery season one um and now with section 31 and discovery season two but i think what we're trying to do is look at okay um what are we what are we dealing with on a wider scale here beyond like oh our own rise of fascism in our own country and our own problems with with capitalism and and the way that it is perpetuating these cycles of 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 fascism uh we wanted to look at like well let's let's look at even a broader topic of how we learn to communicate with that that we don't understand how do we empathize and humanize people that we don't see as people uh and for that reason mm -hmm. primarily we brought in the tholians um who are the most alien of the alien species that i think we encounter in star trek and have been really underexplored so we're uh utilizing our time on star trek to uh take a deep dive into the very alien nature of the tholians and kirk's relationship uh with the alien and how he understands uh that which is alien to him and how he empathizes with or doesn't empathize with that which is alien to him I just finished writing a piece that will be on Wired on Sunday, or probably after folks listen to this, um, about Captain Marvel. That's very focused on those questions, and I'm very excited to hear uh, that that's going to be the focus of the series. That That's fabulous and really something science fiction needs to do. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we, it's something that the original series does so well. Um, it's something people can forget mm -hmm. because there's so much Star Trek legacy, we get caught up in in that legacy. But the truth of the matter is, you know, especially in the first two seasons of TOS, almost every episode is a series of, you know, kind of loosely drawn characters focusing and exploring an incredibly relevant and topical issue of the day. Um, it was a, a show about allegories and fables that directly reflected what was going on in the current climate. So when we stepped in to kind of start to craft this series, we had to be sure that um, IDW was okay with the concept of aggressively going after not issues that were topical, you know, in the 70s, but issues that were topical now, that are topical now, and that are challenging now, and to their grand um you know to our pleasure and their um awesomeness they were like hell yeah let's let's do it you know let's let's start some conversations yeah i mean i you know as someone who i didn't grow up watching the original series like it always has been ds9 for me um it's interesting to sort of have a, a, a comic that's based in the original series that's offering me like a reason to read something that's not about the characters that i'm invested in really because it's sort of focused on themes I am invested in. Right. I mean, I think it, it would be unwise of us to take on Star Trek and play entirely on nostalgia, um, especially with TOS, because it is, mm -hmm. um, because frankly, there's a whole portion of the audience uh, now for this book, um, for Star Trek, who, when they see uh, Captain Kirk, they see Chris Pine. And when they see... Spock, they now have two actors um, who they can see in that role. Uh, you know, you we have uh, both the 09 version and the Discovery version of Spock. Um, you know, you have 
I, I still have a hard time looking at uh, uh, DeForest Kelly and not seeing uh, a little bit of Carl Urban. Uh, and like, that's a trip. Like mm. that's, that's actually kind of a challenge when you're going back to these older actors and saying, okay, we're going to do this thing in this much more like staid tone with these sets that look like they were built in the sixties. And like, how are you going to properly uh, tell stories that are new or vibrant or exciting uh, in that regard? And to us, the answer really just comes down to write the characters as, as best you possibly can. And what we've discovered is that writing these characters is just like a drug. It's so fun. It is so fun. They are a delight. They are, there's no characters like Kirk's Pock and Bones. You just can't do better. Put those three characters in a room and you've got a, an incredible story. And then what we've discovered is that the same thing happens when you put Scotty and Chekhov and Uhura in a room. And that all of a sudden they create a really interesting uh, uh, sort of trinary dynamic that gives you your own storylines. And like, we're, we're really trying to like dig into that cast and do some stuff that the show was never really um, interested in or necessarily able to do. Uh, and instead tell uh, some stories that are more, for lack of a better way of seeing it, like tell stories that feel like they were told now. Like they were told for mm -hmm. the now, like they were told about the now, like they were told, like mm -hmm. those actors were alive right now and doing those stories. Um, but doing so in a way that, that still uses the aesthetics of the 60s series. Um, so we hope that ideally people who've never seen an episode of Star Trek, the original series, can come to this. Um, we're going to onboard you really fast. There, there's no continuity. So anything you really need to know, we're going to get you up front uh, and you'll be on board pretty immediately onto a new mystery, onto a new story that's going to take you along that way. It's called year five, but, you know, that doesn't mean you need to read or watch years one through four. You can come right onto this book and experience it the way that you would. And then ideally, if you really enjoy this, maybe you look back at TOS and see what they were doing a little bit better um, because it is sometimes hard to see from the distance of about 50 years what uh, Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and Bob Justman and DC Fontana were doing on that show um, because it was, uh, as Colin put it, right, extremely aggressive about its observations about humanity and about politics and about um, science, uh, even if it was ultimately like behind the lens of, you know, what people really remember is, you know, Kirk swinging across the galaxy or Spock raising an eyebrow or Bones saying, damn it, Jim, I'm a whatever. Like, we do that, that stuff is all iconic and it's all true, but that's not why you love TOS. Yeah. You love TOS because the elevated mm -hmm. storytelling is just beyond what almost anyone was doing at the time and what they're doing now. Hey, Jack, I just had a really good idea. Because its heart was in the right place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Oh, exactly. Yeah. What was that, Colin? I just had a really good idea. Yeah? Uh, with every issue that gets released, we should release a, uh, a weekly watch list. So it's Ooh. like the four episodes that best tie into the issue that will be ha uh, coming out that month. Um, a thousand percent. We're doing it. Great. Love it. Yeah. Perfect. That's smart. That's that sounds... smart packaging. You guys are good at social media. And uh, I think that will help <laughs> boost the book with that strategy. I like that. Well, it's funny. I mean, it's just, it's always just that kind of stuff is just how can we best engage with the people who love this stuff? Um, there's a mercenary aspect, I guess, but like, mm -hmm. it's just honestly engaging with the people who, who care. And if we can do something to encourage them to care along with us, like it's always better to watch a movie with friends than alone. Writing is a very solitary um, thing, uh, even for a partnership. Uh, you you end up in, I mean, I think it's ameliorated by a partnership, certainly, but it's still, you know, it's still pretty 
pretty lonely. When you can turn that into a conversation, um, I think the wonderful thing about social media and why you see writers so take to social media um, as hard as they do is that it provides us an opportunity to get outside of our box and talk to not just other writers, but more importantly, to talk to the people who are reading the work, um, to geek out about the work, to get excited about the work. Every writer is secretly their own biggest fan. Like, they'll, they'll tell you they aren't, but they absolutely are. Every writer is sitting You've there You've got to be. Like, yeah, every writer is sitting there being like, I'm doing this cool thing, and I'm really excited, and I really hope somebody sees it. Uh, so when you get to see somebody who does see it, that really means a lot. Um, like I, somebody, somebody put up a, there's a, there's a page in Green Arrow, uh, 50 where, uh, we where where Dinah, um, just kicks the asses of a bunch of these jackbooted, like SWAT guys who are about to hurt Ollie. And when she does it, we ran this whole page about, that was a, 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 it was a callback to an old Neil Adams, uh, Denny O'Neill page that introduces her. And, Mm -hmm. you know, totally unprompted yesterday, um, a, a fan account put out, those two pages side by side with each other uh, along with like a quote from our book and to me and like tagged us in it. So I got to see that they made the observation. They saw what we did because we, we don't say like after Denny O'Neill, like we don't, we're not, we're not making a direct because right. we're not taking from him. We're just like homaging it. And they saw the homage and they like put it up there. And now I got to have a conversation with people that was like about the process of doing that homage. And that's a blast. Why wouldn't you want to do that? That's incredible. And I love the conversations that you guys brought about, you know, creating Jace Riot. I mean, it's one of the things that got me to remember to pay attention to the series and the transparency you had about, like, creating this character and the series ending. And, yeah, like, you guys, you know, for anyone who's not following you, too, on social media who's interested in how comics are made, you guys definitely have Twitter accounts that are to be followed. So remind our listeners, what where can they find you on Twitter? You can name is Jackson Lansing. You can find me on Twitter at Jackson Lansing. Um, that's J-A-C-K-S-O-N-L-A-N-Z-I-N-G. And I am Colin Kelly. You can find me at C.P. Kelly. No one knows what the P stands for. I know what the P stands for, but I won't tell anyone. That's because that's the beauty of the partnership. <laughs> That's actually well, what the P stands for. Thank you both for, for joining us again. The P stands for. Oh my God! It the, does. P the, the P stands for partnership. partnership. I just broke. I just broke the secret and the privacy. <laughs> there you go. The, There's your headline. That's, that's, that's the cheesiest thing you've ever said, dude. I love it. That's great. Aww. Well, thanks again, uh, and to our listeners. Um, Thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, I'm on Twitter too much. Some might say E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. Um, if this is coming out in March, please vote for my essay about why figurative theater by Christian Death should win the best goth song ever bracket in March of Ladness. I hope to have your support there. Um, and otherwise, yeah, keep an eye on graphicpolicy.com, comics news reviews. And I have a piece about Captain Marvel up on wired.com. My first piece for them. I'm really excited about that. Like we say at Graphic Policy, keep it geeky.